listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by Charles Mills to talk about White Bear, the second episode of the second season of Black Mirror, which first premiered in 2013. Dr. Charles W. Mills is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, where he researches and teaches in the general area of social and political philosophy, particularly oppositional political theory centered on class, gender, and race. He is the author of over 100 journal articles, book chapters, comments, and replies, and he's also written six books, including his award-winning 1997 text, The Racial Contract, his 1999 collection of essays, Blackness Visible, which I count among the top 10 philosophical texts that had the greatest influence on me personally, and the widely influential text, nearing canonical status at this point, Contract and Domination, which he co-authored with Carol Pateman in 2007. I've always been a big fan of Charles' work, and since we were introduced many years ago now through mutual friends in professional philosophy, I've only become a bigger fan. He is a breath of fresh air at academic conferences, always incisive, original, rigorous, and timely in his analyses. And if you've ever been to one of his sessions, you already know the man can absolutely slay with nothing more than a lapel mic and a handout. But on a more personal note, I also want to say that Charles is really a model mentor, which can be rare in our profession these days. I never took a class from him, and he was not on my dissertation committee. But when I ran into a bump in the road in my early professional career, I reached out to Charles for his help, and he did not hesitate to lend the full weight of his support to a mostly unknown junior scholar to whom he had no professional obligation to help. I've never forgotten that, and I'm very grateful for it, and I really do genuinely hope to pay that forward someday. So I'm super excited to jump into conversation with Charles about White Bear, and welcome, Charles. Thank you, Lee, and in a, such a great welcome. I'm thinking to myself, I need to get this woman to blow up my next book, or maybe my <laughs> five books. <laughs> you got it. That's going to be my pay it forward. That's not even a pay it forward. That's a pay it backwards. Yes, <laughs> so I'll still have to pay it forward. Okay, Charles, what I do at the beginning of every one of these episodes is I ask my guests to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to be talking about. So could you summarize White Bear? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I should just mention in advance that since my teens, I've always been a big science fiction fan. I tried to keep up faithfully with all the series. So the original Twilight Zone, the various subsequent iterations of the Twilight Zone, and of course what many people see now as a sort of contemporary Twilight Zone, which is precisely, of course, Black Mirror. Okay, so we have the scenario, a young black woman, is that significant or not? A young woman wakes in a room, there are bandages on her wrists, she can't remember who she is, doesn't know what's going on, she's looking around for an explanation, she goes outside, and there's weird stuff happening because people don't seem to want to talk to her, some people are filming her, she runs after somebody she sees, hoping to get an explanation, out of them, and then there are people who are very threatening. It looks as if maybe there's not just folks sitting by in a detached way, but there are people actually who could pose a threat to her. There's somebody with a shotgun. 
So she hooks up with somebody who does start talking to her. So that's progress in some sense. And they're hiding in various locations. And then the guy with the shotgun is blasting the window or the door or whatever. And then she and this other young woman run outside. And there's a guy in a truck says, come. So you know, she hesitates a bit considering that this world is so weird. But hey, she gets, they both get in the truck with this guy. She's having weird flashbacks all the time. A few seconds, and there's a kind of familiarity and unfamiliarity. There's a young girl, and there was a photograph in the room that she woke up with. Is this perhaps her daughter? So she and this other young woman are now in the truck with the guy, and she has a sense that maybe she knows where he's going, because he says he has a hideout, and she says in the woods, and he says, yeah, how could you know that? So she thinks there's something weird, a kind of deja vu effect. Anyway, suddenly when they get to the woods, this guy turns nasty and he pulls a shotgun on both of them. He puts a hood over her head and then the other woman is leading her and they come to a site where there's a woman that's crucified on a tree. There are you know, other people looking in bad shape. This is clearly bad news. And how can she get out of it? And the guy basically puts her arms so that she can't move and pulls out an electric drill and talking about he's going to drill right through her brain or something. So while his attention is turned, the other woman runs away. And she says, too bad, I've lost that one. And we think, well, that's not going to save our heroine. But lo and behold, she returns when the guy's attention is engaged. And she picks up the shotgun and she shoots the guy. And they then both run away. So, you know, this is good. And there are people chasing them, but at least they have the car now. And then they're going. And the other woman says that what they need to do is to get to this broadcasting station, which is coded white bear like something. And if they can destroy it, that's going to help them in their situation. So they come to this station in a white bear, which is, you know, that gives the episode its name and they go inside. And then once again, things start going and there are people there. And again, they have to fight for their lives. And then something weird happens because you know, she gets hold of the shotgun she fires it at one of the people threatening her. And rather than a shotgun blast, there's a sort of weird kind of effect, as if it's, it's a fake shotgun, it's just a rage of paper or something. And then they go through a door, and lo and behold, there's a big audience there. So it's as if the whole thing has been set up, and she's trapped into a chair, and the other woman turns out to be not somebody who's helping her, but part of the plot and the audience is in a sort of in a jeering and a shouting and so forth. And it turns out that this scenario is basically punishment for what she and this other guy did. And the young girl that she had the photograph of was not her daughter, it was a child, she and this guy. They're both psychos, they kidnapped this child, they tortured the kid to death, and everything we've been going through is an elaborate ritual of punishment. That's what the whole thing is. And one of the people, I think it's the actual guy who had um, taken them in the truck, turns out to be sort of the main organizer, and he's refreshing her memory because the erasure of her memory was part of the whole thing. She's taken away in a truck. She's taken back to the room, and it turns out this thing is repeated over and over again. So it's Groundhog Day, except a bad Groundhog Day, instead of a Groundhog Day of repeated punishment. And they inject her with something which erases her memory, and the guy crosses off a date on the calendar. And I think it's like the whole of October and maybe in you know, September and August before that, they've been doing this. And in that we see her at the end, she's losing her memory. She's going to forget everything that's happened to her, except again, presumably the brief flashes. 
And we led to realize that the whole episode is about this future society in which people who do terrible things are punished in this fashion. That's such a good summary. Uh, oh, I'll just... one, one more thing, and you'll be thinking, when is this guy going to stop? That White Bear, the actual significance of the name, is I think it was a toy of a young girl, a white teddy yeah. bear. So the, the name of the episode is linked directly to the crime that they committed in you know, capturing, torturing, and killing this young girl. Yeah, and the park, and it's literally called White Bear Justice Park, is a scene in which this whole theatrical performance of this punishment takes place, as you say, over and over again. So I want to say, and anyone who's seen this episode knows that this is really probably one of the most disturbing of all of the Black Mirror episodes. But before we jump into the episode, I want to ask you about something you said right at the beginning, which is that you're a fan of science fiction. Why? What's good about science fiction? I could give you a pretentious answer, which what philosophers are supposed to do. So here's my pretentious answer. Okay, but after that, I want the regular people. The real. So the pretentious answer is that philosophy, what philosophy is supposed to do is to shake up your presuppositions, make you question yourself, make you question your society. We have the model of Socrates making a nuisance of himself in the streets of Athens. How do you define this? Well, that's not a good definition. What about this? How do you answer that question and so forth? So the whole point, certainly very much in the analytic tradition, is to make you put into question your conception of the world, see if you have good reasons for believing what you believe about the world, and possibly change your mind about stuff. And though science fiction comes in a sort of huge variety, there's what used to be called old-fashioned in a space opera, which is basically in a sense the most popular because that lends itself to spaceships and monsters, such as in Star Trek or Star Wars and so forth. There's a significant amount of science fiction which sort of involves this sort of speculative stuff. So future societies, something has changed, this has a sort of overall effect on social structure, and the readers then plunge into this milieu, and it's often faced with the challenge of trying to figure out what's happening. And in that way, putting into question our beliefs about the world or normative assumptions in the same way that you could say science fiction does. Now, that's a pretentious answer, but on the other hand, you could really say, I love the monsters and the ray guns and so forth. So maybe that's what's really going on. And it's no coincidence that years after the series ended, I'm still watching reruns of Star Trek The Next Generation. So I suspect that maybe the non-pretentious answer is what's you know, the, the um, correct answer. Yeah, I don't think the non-pretentious answer is not also a kind of philosopher's answer, which is that science fiction captures our imagination and motivates us to ask important questions. Rather than thinking I have the IQ IQ of a 12, maybe a bright 12-year-old and um, just not grooving out on this stuff, you're rescuing me. Thank you. And I appreciate this. Maybe I should just tell you at the beginning here that uh, White Bear is one of the episodes that I actually teach in my courses every semester. Uh, I teach it in an intro level course, and it's a relatively short episode. It's about 48 minutes long, and I happen to teach it in a class that is a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday class, so it's a 50-minute long class. Uh, And what that means is that there's one day a semester where... 
where I show this episode. But unfortunately, there's no time for introduction and no time for decompression afterwards. <laughs> you know, Fast, they see the yes. Heads. They don't even get to complain <laughs> to their professor and then they exit. Unfortunately, that is true. And I do think that it has become a kind of running joke on my campus that former students, I'll hear them saying in the hallways, oh, it's White Bear Day in oh Dr. J's God, class a as, as, a, as a way of explaining why their peers are walking around in a stunned daze for the rest of the day. But it is this really shocking. It's very powerful, absolutely. It really is. And I do think that as much as I do feel bad about the impact that it has on them in the class, I do think that it's something that you have to sit with that for a while, marinate in yes, it for a absolutely. while before you can really talk about it. Yes. But one of the things that we often talk about very first in the following class is, is the white justice park just? That's the question that we ask. And clearly, this is just asking a, you know, really straightforward question about Lex Talionis. Is eye for an eye justice just? Absolutely. So I'd like to hear you address that question first. Yes, absolutely. So there's all kinds of interesting issues in different philosophical rationales for punishment. So in terms of the standard distinction, main contrast used to be a utilitarian approach. So Punishment is based on a you know, sort of maximizing the good in some sense. For example, you're taking the offender away from society so he or she can't you know, transgress on somebody else's rights again, so that overall good is produced by imprisonment. And as we know, up to a few hundred years ago, it was in fact the case that torture was used in many European countries. This wasn't something that was done in secret. In some cases, you have mob scenes where people are tortured, people are flayed, people are broken on the wheel and so forth. So, you know, there is that tradition that's not just punishment in terms of imprisonment or execution, but could involve the deliberate infliction of pain. So there's that kind of rationale in terms of- And we, of, we don't have to go back 200 years, 2004. Well, I did well, We saw the Abu Ghraib photos. photos in 2004. Yes. I wondered, you know, how Frank can one be? Yeah, then the other kind of rationale, of course, is the rationale in terms of retributivist justice. So the idea here is the question of whether good is produced or not is really relevant. The idea is that you've transgressed, the society has a certain set of rules, there's a social contract, very different versions of the contract, certainly. Mm -hmm. But in the Kantian version of the social contract, the idea is you've done wrong, so it therefore follows that punishment is basically required by that alone. The punishment could even have bad effects. For Kant, it doesn't matter. And it's classic example. People think, whoa, this guy's a real hardliner. Maybe you do not want him on the Supreme Court. The, the classic <laughs> example is where he says, if society were about to break down, I mean, think of you know, all the post-apocalyptic scenarios we see on TV now. So, you know, there's something has happened, plague or whatever, society's about to break down. The last prisoner, on death row, you make sure you execute that guy before you go on. So they're the respectable theorists, utilitarian versus retributivist. And then, as you said at the start, there's the old-fashioned Lex Talionis, eye for an eye, which some people see as in a large sort of, you know, overlapping with retributivism, but you could say sort of district aspects to it. But yeah, we then have this question, and is this society where this is happening, is this a good society? 
Or are we horrified not merely at the revelation that the heroine, who of course we identify with, the episode is structured, so we identify yeah. with her naturally, but then we make a yeah. terrible discovery at the end. She's the one who has committed this crime. So the question then is, is it the case that her punishment is justified or do we have to say that a society that does that is basically doing something worse than what she herself did? So that though we certainly condemn what she does, we also condemn the society and maybe in even stronger terms. Insofar as there are all these people participating, it's basically turned into a spectacle and it evokes in the US context, let us say, memories of lynching. So there's that interesting aspect to it. So lynching, mm -hmm. there was some sort of, you know, covert at midnight lynchings, but a significant number of lynchings and people have, you know, studied lynchings, have written about this, also had this public spectacle aspect. And in fact, startlingly for a contemporary audience, even though what you're doing is technically illegal, some lynchings were advertised in advance. Notices were taken out in the paper. The Negro who committed this terrible crime is going to be burnt 3 p.m. Saturday afternoon. And in some cases, you have special trains being organized so people can come. People bring their kids. People are going to have the picnic basket, all this kind of stuff. Part of what I think the episode was meant to evoke in us is to a certain extent this history of lynching idea of punishment as spectacle, thereby causing us to what kind of people would do this and can we really justify this despite the terrible thing that she committed? And in the case of the movie, of course, it's not a given lynching, it's not one lynching, because she's not literally killed. She's there to be brought back the next day over and over again. I do want to get back to that repetition of the punishment, but if I could just pick up on your comparison to public lynchings, because in my experience, when, for example, I teach this in my class, my students are more appalled and offended by what in the episode is called the watchers, the just regular people who come to the park, With the pay Right, pay their park admission just to watch this all happen. They're more offended by them than they are by the actual punishment that's being inflicted on Victoria, who's our yes. protagonist's names. And this actually, almost every semester really surprises me because that seems to me to be the least imaginative of the science fiction parts of this episode. We have currently, right now, whole television channels that are devoted to Watchers. punishment punishment as spectacle Sex inside the prisons, Dateline NBC, Court TV. And that's not even to mention the number of times that as you're scrolling through your Twitter or Facebook or Instagram feed that you can see real fights or increasingly in the last 10 years, actual executions of people. And so this idea that this is unimaginable, that there would be people who watch it, watch yeah. this and experience some pleasure or satisfaction or whatever from it seems shocking to me because this seems to me to be entirely a, a present reality and not at all a science fiction, compossible world construction. Right, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering 
to what extent do you think that actually let me ask this in a really pointed way do you think it is the case that people who watch videos of for example the execution of black people on social media whether they watch that because they think what they're seeing is just or whether they think that the seeing of it allows them to call attention to an injustice do you think that the watching of it is still based in a kind of base sadistic pleasure in seeing other people suffer that's a really good interesting question and there's some black commentators and this certainly was um, accelerated by George Floyd's killing last May there's just been you know so many interesting stories on CNN on the various newspapers and some commentators have commented on a kind of pornography of blacks suffering right. and um, I'm talking here in part of black commentators and saying that there's something problematic about it and the sort of endless loop of black shootings and in this case of Florida of course it's sort of carried out over all these minutes that a spontaneous response might be this is good because look a liberal society one of the sort of key liberal values was the transparency in the past before their cell phone camera you could talk about these you could claim these things that happened but there was very rarely video evidence of course Rodney King was on the force that was before the advent of the cell phone but I um, mean somebody actually had a movie camera so that film was shown over and over again previously you have allegations of police brutality wrongful police killings but no evidence but now you do so isn't it a positive thing in the interest of transparency that the racist nature of crucial institutions be brought out so that was sort of initial spontaneous response but then in the sort of aftermath of all these recent events and all these endless recycled things there is this really interesting question raised is something else going on which is not the basically living up to a liberal value we should applaud but it's something darker and it's in a pandering to impulses within ourselves that should not really be gratified so yeah it is really raising some really interesting questions i think Yeah, I think that you're bringing up a really good point because I do think that there is exactly as you say a kind of embedded aspiration in liberal ideology that says if we could just show yes. the injustice and everyone yes. were aware of it, then we can yes. combat it. But unfortunately, what we have in fact seen since the emergence of social media and easily accessible surveillance is that we see things like we're going back to this old joke is about what do you believe when oh, you're lying, lying eyes yes. it's like it's like I, i saw philando castile get shot in the front seat of his car unarmed i've seen people get choked out i've seen people get shot i've seen people get strangled and everyone saw it and, and nothing, nothing was, was done. done so and nothing changes and so there is a little bit i think of a concern that does this kind of give lie to that liberal aspiration that transparency is all we need because might it also be the case that if we just keep showing these videos in which white people kill black people with impunity yes then might that not also have the exact that's a recent chatter partly because you could then get this weird kind of situation where the very fact 
that it's shown these um, you know, loops, you know, one, two or some eight minutes or whatever are shown repeatedly. And the outcome is not one that you know, leads to um, what you would think of spontaneous as justice for the black victim or the brown victim. That then, in a sense, discredits the testimony of the camera in that were what the camera telling us is correct, there would have been his convictions. There are no convictions. Therefore, does, it doesn't follow, of course, but in terms of patterns of mistaken inference, it therefore follows that the evidence of the camera was misleading. And that could then shape the evidence of you know, future video surveillance, you know, future iPhone uh, pictures. In other words, we've seen this all before. There was a reason they let the cops off. We can then, with confidence, assume that sort of future depictions of what seem like unjustifiable killings, they're really justifiable. Because had they not been, been justifiable, then this long train of previous ones would have led to a whole raft of convictions of the police, and it didn't. Or the other possibility is, and maybe this is another case of mistaken inference, but I think in this example, the inference is actually ends up being justified, is that the inference is not those were your lying eyes, but rather, yes, we all saw exactly what you saw, but it doesn't matter. matter. Like there's no consequence for that. And so the result of seeing these things over and over is in fact, Charles, exactly what we saw last week at the Capitol building, which is that a lot of white people say, I I will not be stopped. The police won't shoot me. The, I can literally storm the Capitol building and this won't happen to me because this is in fact the reality of how justice works. Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly. And of course, there's a lot of commentary on that too. Can you imagine a black mob? Whereas Pelosi, of course, they wouldn't have been looking for Pelosi, they're looking for other people. And you know, they're, they're, they're let in, they're breaking down windows, they're taking photographs of lists, they're waving, let's say, you know, black nationalist flags, African Liberation Day. Would those folks have got that far? No, they wouldn't have had to be ordering in whole truckloads of body bags to clean up what was left over afterwards, yes. Yeah, so in a, we have a series of spectacles, the Black Lives Matter Matters demonstrations, many peaceful, some unfortunate degenerating. And then we have this spectacle on January the 6th, and everybody's watching because you know, everybody's tuned in. And what sort of cumulative effect in terms of you know, the polity and the optics, and that phrase optics is in a sense so interesting because if you pair it with transparency, you may think, well, the optics should be transparency. But of course, the context which is normally used, it's usually anti-transparency. Now, there's something bad is going on here, but let's make sure the optics are right. So in, in terms yes. of visual yes. metaphors, it's a wonderful kind of combination. So maybe this is a good time to go back and point out that in this episode the protagonist victoria is not an innocent victim no and i think it's no accident that the writers chose the worst possible crime right violence against a child of course she abducts tortures kills and films this violence against a child and again when i teach this episode i sometimes say to my students 
Because the great genius of this episode is that, as you said, it's told in reverse, that we're meant to sympathize with the protagonist before we actually know who she is. I sometimes say to my students, I say, if I had walked in at the beginning of this class and you had not seen this episode, and I had described the crime that Victoria and in this episode, her boyfriend Ian committed, that they abducted a child, they kept her for weeks, they ignored this kind of national campaign to have the child return to her mother. They ended up taking her into the middle of the woods, torturing her, burning her alive, and filming it. And then I asked you, I say to my students, what should the punishment of somebody like this be? I guarantee they would come up with some medieval shit. Like, I think that's unfortunately true, yes. Yes, seriously. It's not enough. We need more. And this is the the problem about living in a society in which these sorts of pathological crimes that there are no amount of talions that can compensate for them, right, occur. Maybe I suppose what I'd like to ask you about now is I don't want you to have to rehearse your whole philosophy, but just to talk a little bit about what you mean by the difference between ideal and non-ideal theory so that we can talk about what it means to talk about justice in an unjust society. Of course, yes. Okay, so the terminology is in a um, a terminology we owe to John Rawls, famous book, A Theory of Justice, and uh, it's quite often misinterpreted by people in part because there's a danger of overlap with other kinds of distinctions. So there's a possible overlap with between ideal and non-ideal as normative and descriptive. So you think, for example, of political science, it's often thought of as doing descriptive stuff, what are voting patterns, what sort of racial breakdown, and then normative stuff is questions like justice. So there's that kind of contrast. And it's important to emphasize that's not the ideal, non-ideal contrast. And another contrast is ideal and real politic. So the ideal is people who think we should be morally motivated, constrain our actions, whether as individuals or corporate entities, by a set of rules. And the real politic folks say, look, the important thing is just in a basic get what you want. And while that's not generally seen as acceptable at the local individual level, some people say that international relations, real politic is what needs to apply. We have our national interests, we're just going to fight for it. So those are two contrasts that are different. It's really important to conceptually separate them. So the ideal, not ideal contrast, as Rawls uses it, is as follows. Ideal theory, principles of justice under ideal circumstances. So basically, you have an ideal society. You want to keep it turning. Well, gee, that sounds weird. I'm going to decide to turn. <laughs> you want to make sure. You want to maintain thank justice. You, thank you, Lee. Yes. You want sort of it to maintain its just profile. Here are the principles you need to do that. And then non-ideal theory is this different thing. You have an unjust society. So here, of course, you do not want it to maintain its nature as an unjust society. You want to transform it, moving toward a just society, if not perfectly just, at least in a much closer than it is now. And that then means that he's bringing in issues of corrective justice. There's a lot of terminology here. It's not denoting the same thing, so they find distinctions, corrective, restorative, rectificator, compensator, etc., etc. But the key point is principles of justice under non-ideal circumstances. And the problem with a lot of mainstream philosophy is that people come up with principles of justice under ideal circumstances 
which is what Rawls himself does. And we need to ask the question is, okay, that's great. But how well do these principles apply in non-ideal circumstances, particularly radically non-ideal circumstances? If there are circumstances that are just marginally of perfection, it's really in a sort of a very close to what an ideal society would be like, just minor divergences, you could say, where it's close enough, it doesn't matter. But if the society is radically different, so Rawls has this phrase, a well-ordered society. And Carl Pateman and I, in the book we did together, coined the phrase, which alas, has not caught on, ill-ordered societies. So they're well-ordered societies and ill-ordered societies. And the question is, what well, the principle of just ill-ordered societies? Because the reality is, those are the societies we're living in. There's no perfect society on the face yeah. of the globe. There's not even any society that's close to perfection. It's just different degrees of ill-orderedness. And this one sort of downsides of philosophy as it has developed in the West and maybe elsewhere also, and has to do, this might be straying a bit from your question, what is the demographic base of philosophy as a profession? And if it's historically been in a middle to upper class white guys, of course, in the pre-modern, you could say they weren't white because you know, whiteness wasn't around yet, members of the dominant mm. ethnic group. It means that the people are articulating social justice theory for us, the ones who are least likely to be affected by social injustices. Whereas mm -hmm. what you would want is a social justice theory that focuses on non-ideal circumstances and ill-ordered societies. We have the converse. And it's only in recent years with second wave and after feminist theory, with critical race theory, with um, people from LGBTQ communities, they're raising questions from the perspective of social oppression. They're the ones who are suffering from an agenda or racial or heterosexist oppression. And they're basically saying, hold on, don't we need to know what are the principles of justice for societies like this? Yeah, so that distinction is an absolutely crucial one. We then, sorry, go on, yes. I think it's really important also to point out, in all fairness to Rawls, which I'm not usually inclined to extend fairness to, but in all fairness to Rawls, he said this himself, right? He said, that he said, like, these, he, he gave, like, roughly a list of societies to which we should not apply yes. ideal theories of justice. And they include, I don't remember the whole list, but it's like slave societies, racist societies, aristocratic societies, and arguably, the United States is all three of those. I think theocratic society. And Isabel Wilkins. And caste societies, yeah. And caste is near the top of the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, yes. Yeah, so we live in a society which, for all of the protests from academic Rawlsians, academic Rawlsians should know better than anyone else is not the society to yes, apply ideal true. justice yes. theory to. of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. So here's my question. Do you think in non-ideal theories of justice, 
that there is a proper place for merely punitive versions of justice. So do you think there's a place for punishment? Not compensation, not retribution, but merely punitive forms of punishment in a non-ideal theory of justice. Because I think that there are two ways to read this Black Mirror episode. One is, this is how justice as deterrence works, right? Is let's just shock and horrify people into behaving, or into obeying the law, at least. That's one reading. The other reading is, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So I wonder if you personally think that punishment is an essential part of justice in a non-ideal justice theory. I think you are going to have a place for it, yes, because unfortunately, non-ideal circumstances, circumstances of oppression, we would like to think that the people who are oppressed, and there's in a sense, they're going to be rendered saintly and long-suffering by their oppression. But it doesn't work like that at all. And one sort of natural reaction, not justifiable, but being oppressed is, I've been screwed. I am going to make sure I screw as many people as possible once I have the power to do it. You are going to have to deal with folks like that. And the question is, of course, what is a humane way of doing it? What are the consequences of doing it? You think, for example, of the debate over the death penalty, and there are many people opposed to the death penalty on principle. The other people opposed to the death penalty on some grounds that it just doesn't work. It does mm-hmm. not de- deter mm-hmm. people. So you know, if that's supposed to mean function, it's serving. That's not working. And in addition, the biases, the racial biases are so overwhelming, though you know, it's been a sort of endless struggle to, to convince the courts of this. So you then get a situation where, in terms of bringing together the various possible reasons for opposing the death penalty, you do have to take into account the non-ideal circumstances and not culture argument in such an abstract way that it's removed from the actual societies in which you're living. Yes, I do think you know, there is going to be a need for punishment, but we do need to have a very sort of crucial debate about what form that punishment should take. And of course, there have been all the debates about the prison industrial complex, what should be, should be done with it. Is a prison-free society possible? If, we, if you don't have punishment in terms of incarceration in these institutions, what alternative possibilities are there, and so forth. So these are all really interesting questions, and not to pump ourselves up more than we're already pumped up. I mean, maybe that's not even possible. Maybe we'd explode for a pumped up anymore. But you, you'd think that given that the new Biden administration, with a lot of debates about all these questions, they've announced it publicly that it's like racial justice. And one would hope that there was some consultation with some folks in a see, insofar as philosophers have these normative insights, I would like to think so, that you know, some of the sort of many debates that have been taking place in philosophy journals, philosophy books for decades, that some of that wisdom could be brought to bear somehow. Yeah, let's hope because there is, I'll just say, exactly zero justification for the death penalty other than somebody wants their pound of flesh. But I do know that you have argued that other non-punitive measures are essential to non-ideal tactics or policies of justice, reparations being one of them. I wonder where does punishment fall in that ranking? In a non-ideal normative theory of justice, reparations, I think you would say, should be first, right? Yes, yes. A case can certainly be made, and it's been made repeatedly, 
by the black community right after the Civil War. You have people, you know, talking about the famous 40 acres and a mule. It surfaces repeatedly in the 20th century, the 1960s. There are demands that reach sufficient prominence that this white guy, progressive white guy, Boris Bitka, wrote a book on the case for black reparations. And Robert Nozick, libertarian, far-right theorist, give him credit. He actually cites it in his book, Anarchist State and Utopia. Mm-hmm. And then 2000, Randall Robinson, The Debt, what, what White America Owes Blacks. And then Ta-Nehisi Coates is out in the Atlantic more recently. So the issue has come up constantly. And you could say that it's reached its furthest insofar as in 2019, the House actually had hearings on the issue. So, you know, that, so, you, know you actually had courts testifying before a House panel on this issue. And insofar as the Biden administration, to a significant extent, owes its victory to the mobilization of Black American voters. And in fact, you could, you could say without much fear of contradiction that in South Carolina, they saved his candidacy altogether. Mm-hmm. Then racial justice really needs to be on their agenda. So no more empty promises. Let's see something concrete done. Now, the problem is, of course, that this is taking place not in the boom time, let's say, of the, in the 1960s, but it's taking place at a time of economic crisis that is in a, as, maybe as bad as the Great Recession, maybe worse than the Great Recession, maybe comparable to the Great Depression. So there are tens of millions of white people who are suffering, who are poor, who are unemployed, who can't pay the rent, who are worried about eviction of student loans. So it's natural that such folks should be saying, look, we have interests too, we have needs as well. So the argument I've been using recently is that we need to combine racial justice with class justice. And class justice sounds weird as a phrase because, the, you know, they think, well, surely class justice should mean there are no classes. That's in the radical view. But insofar as you still have class in the sense, at least, of people having a sort of you know, significantly different amounts of money, then the roles and ideas, I've been critical of roles and other areas, the roles and ideal is classes as fluid. So it's not that you're locked into a particular class, like in the medieval period. So basically birth to death, you're a peasant. Um, it's not the case that there's a 12-step program for working your way out of peasant status. You're a peasant, that's it. So the modern capitalist space in the meritocratic society is supposed to be one in which your talents can take you out of particular classes. So you could right. say it's not the most attractive of ideals. You could say that, you know, there's a lot of con- confidence tricks in terms of, you know, the justification for the system. Nonetheless, insofar as it's just a comparative thing, then clearly a society of a greater degree of fluidity is more attractive than a society where people are locked into sort of caste societies. So class justice could then mean basically giving people the opportunity and in roles concern for those at the bottom. And if you combine some kind of democratic vision with targeted measures of racial justice, that I think would be an ideal that's both attractive and possibly, one has to be cautious, possibly politically viable in the sense that you're appealing to white working class interests as well. You're saying, we know you guys are hurting as well. So let's have this, you know, combined social policy. And some people, I think Robert Reich, you know, had a column saying that you need a populism 
So insofar as you can attribute Trump's success back in 2016 to a supposed populism, which was really, of course, when you looked at the fine print or even maybe the 12-point or 20-point print, really is making sure that stuff like in the tax, corporate tax rate would be, would be caught. That's a really populist measure there, yes, for sure. Then you could have a genuine populism in the sense that it is genuinely targeted at people at the bottom of the society, a society which, independent of race, is also hugely unequal in straight class terms. Yeah, so. and I think that one of the things that is the sort of huge missing factor of what many people wrongly attribute to Trump's 2016 or leading up to 2016 base as a kind of class-based populism is, of course, it's not class-based at all in the sense that it doesn't exhibit any kind of real class consciousness. So absolutely essential to the sort of Marxist understanding of working class is that one understands that the emancipation of the working people is the emancipation of everyone. So that bettering yourself is bettering everyone. Yes, many of these folks have lost out in the new plutocratic order. You know, the fact that these huge difference of rich and poor, and people can see that and say, hey, you know, the, the Democrats, the Democratic Party not working out for me. They're filled with these elites who look down on folks like me. Donald Trump seems a straight talking guy. He's going to go to Washington, clean up the swamp. And so it seems so sadly ironic. Can't even see. I know, I know, God. Four years of hindsight. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. J. Just wanted to jump in here for a second to remind you that you can keep up with this podcast on our Black Mirror Reflections Facebook page, also on Twitter at BMR underscore podcast. And I also wanted to make a special request that you please subscribe to this podcast on whatever streaming service that you use to listen to podcasts. And if you feel favorably inclined to do so, take a minute to rate and maybe even comment on this podcast. Now back to our conversation. Okay, so... Can we turn, return to the episode for just one second? Yes, and let me ask you a question. So let's imagine that the two criminals in this episode, so Victoria and Ian are the two criminals that abducted this little girl, Jemima, and tortured and killed her and filmed it. Ian, we learn in the kind of coda to the episode, committed suicide in prison and never actually stood trial for the yes. crime. And so the whole of the society's anger about this crime is entirely directed at Victoria. And we're meant to, I think, deduce that's why this elaborate amusement park Makes of sense. the punishment yeah. has been created. Let me ask you this question. Oh, it's important to note, Ian was white. Victoria, I think the choice of a black woman is really interesting. Yeah, though. Victoria is not white. So yes. let me ask you what you would have viewed differently about this episode had those two people's roles been reversed and that this is the punishment that the society came up with for Ian? Would it be a different episode? Oh, that's a really interesting question because one of the things I was thinking when I rewatched it yesterday is to what extent does race play a role 
in how the producers and the writers have set up the episode, to what extent does race play a role in the audience reception, does it play a different role for audience members of color than white audiences? So I think you know, a lot of interesting questions have been raised there because um, going back to the initial point we discussed, you identify with her immediately because she's a protagonist and the way the camera works, of course. You're and she's suffering. suffering. Yes, and she's suffering. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're empathetic. To, yes, it's, it's a, by the sort of, if you think of a sort of typical image of the black woman, you think of intersectionality theory, Think of the Combahee River Collective and their judgment. So the black woman is going back to the bottom. Of course, it's complicated by class and sexual orientation, but the black woman in general is in a less privileged place. So we identify with her on all these grounds, and she's the oppressed black woman. And not only is she oppressed black woman, but then all this terrible stuff is happening to her, in part just stuff that is like stuff that's happened to a black woman before. But then it's complicated by the fact that it's not the case that she's persecuted only by white people. And you know, the person who seems to be helping her is a white woman, and you know, she's helping her escape. And then at the end, of course, we see an audience, and as you say, she had a white boyfriend. So to what extent is a racial lens illuminating? Should we say that it's just contingent that they chose a black woman? or they chose it later to undermine our initial responses, respond in one way, and then over the narrative, we learn other stuff, so we learn to respond a different way. So that was one of the things that I wondered about. So the evocation of lynching, which as I say, might come naturally to you. You see her you know, as a black lynching victim, except it then turns out she's guilty herself, guilty of a terrible crime. And it's not that she had a black partner, she had a white partner, and though whites were lynched, you know, it wasn't in the sort of horrific way. And blacks were lynched. So race, I think, is playing an interesting role in the narrative in terms of the expectations it sets up for us. And then perhaps in the way it undercuts those expectations, that we have one kind of response and then later we recognize we need to modulate that original response because of the way race plays itself out. I don't think the story would have been believable had Ian been the protagonist. I think that we would have not accepted the coda to the episode at all. I think okay. that we would not have accepted that such a park would have been built for a white man. Uh, okay. as, as an Very interesting. But I also think that we would not have, we would have had entirely different questions as the story unfolded, like, why isn't he fighting back? Why aren't other white people helping him? I think that, where, whereas I think the fact that it's a woman of color as the protagonist, we accept that is the world for women of color. That as not as unfortunate as this may be, that sure. is what happens. And so let me watch this horror unfold. And, and I do think that it is, I think it's absolutely essential to the episode that that Victoria is a woman of color. Okay, so you think it would not have worked at all had she been, been a white guy? No, okay. I don't think that we would have believed it. I, I say we, white people, I'm talking to yes. you, you're a black yes, man, yes, would yes. you have believed it? Let me put myself in the shoes of a white guy, something I rarely do. And of course it's complicated by the fact of the shift in television and movies, because originally, of course, all these shows, not just science fiction, but the everyday show, it will be white protagonists anyway. 
So you can yeah. say that the yeah. sort of range of responses for the white protagonists. But then you get more people of color. This is a completely in a sort of side thing. So we're now in a period, thank God, where television has much more people of color. And whereas if you go back to 1950s and 60s shows where it's like all white casts, except for maybe a problem move and there's a black criminal or whatever, you have people of color in all different kinds of roles. So there's interesting question raised. Do we see this as positive in cases where as with the Shonda Rhimes show set in the Britain of the Regency period that Jane Austen wrote about, you have people of color in all sorts of spheres of society. So that's good. It means that a lot of roles are opened up to actors of color that wouldn't have been the case before. Or is it negative in the sense that race is bracketed as an issue? So the reality of British prejudice and British racism and it doesn't even enter the period because we see these people of color moving freely in the society. So in terms of how you read an episode, it makes a difference with the, the, the time period that you know, the television show is being made. So Black Mirror now in the present is being made in a period when you have actors and actresses of color playing these roles, whereas previously it would have been only white guys who have the choice a person of color, you choose a person of color. So does that then mean that this choice is deliberate and you're pretty sure that it was and that our response as viewers is going to be modulated by race and we would not have been able plausibly to read this person as a white male protagonist to whom all these things were being done. Yes. Yeah, I think that the example that you're using of the new Shonda Rhimes uh, series which the name escapes me right now, is the same question that people were asking about Hamilton, the musical, right? Yes. Uh, is, can you just replace this story sure. without losing something really essential about this story? I think what's interesting about Black Mirror, and, and really more broadly the genre of science fiction, is that race and queerness and disability and gender have always been important recognizable tropes in the genre yes so i i think that black mirror is not at all departing from the history of the genre by casting a black woman as the lead in this particular episode and i think in many ways it knows that given the history of the genre and if it wants to if it wants to be the science fiction series that it is and if it wants to communicate as the creator of black mirrors charlie brooker very famously said he described the series as depicting the way that we're living right now and how we might be living in 15 minutes time if we're clumsy so i think that it is in third, it's got both feet in the genre. Okay. And maybe, I, I don't know, I feel like I'm defending my judgment here about, about with that. That's the, that I, I am pretty convinced of my judgment here, as which is that I do think that it's absolutely essential that this woman okay. be a woman in color and that the so would not have worked. That's, yeah, it would not have worked. So, with, so if I could just ask you, so you're saying it would not have worked with a man of um, color? That's interesting. I don't think that, I think, so I can point to specific elements of the story that would not have worked with a man of color. So I think when they go into the woods 
And there is the threat of violence that, by the way, no violence, no actual harm is done to this. Psychological harm is done to the protagonist, but no actual harm is done to the protagonist in the whole uh, series. However, I think that the very first threat of real harm being done to her other than that she's being chased that there appear to be people after her in general is this not at all subtle threat that she's about to be raped right in the forest Um, yeah he he straps her to a log face down and interestingly takes a drill and puts it in between the shoulder blades on her back which is not, it doesn't take that much of an imaginative leap to uh-huh. imagine this as a, as a metaphoric sure. sort of rape. So I do think that it would have been different with the black male protagonist. Yes. However, I take your point that I, I agree that had it been, had the protagonist been a person of color, a disabled person, a queer person, a gender nonconforming person, I think that the, it still would have worked given the long history of science fiction's use of these social identities as metaphors for the other, the most, yes. Yes. You see, but it definitely would not have worked. I don't think it would have worked with a white woman. I don't think it would have worked with a white man. Yes. I was just thinking of variations while you were speaking. Suppose it was a white kid, a young white girl specifically, and a black male protagonist, and let's say his partner is a black woman or another black man. So that would have evoked lynching trope much more clearly for us. If you remember way back when, yeah. young, young person that you are, the uh, Clarence Thomas hearings. And I'm not famous, that young. <laughs> uh, and the famous Kimberly Crenshaw analysis that right. Thomas positioned himself as a lynching victim. And in fact, the idea was that there was no conceptual room for the black woman in the scenario because the sexual harassment scenario is a white woman scenario and the the lynching victim scenario is a black man scenario. So there was no conceptual room for Anita Hill, for Anita Hill's narrative. So that famous intersectionalist analysis that Crenshaw did in that case was saying, look, we have these standard tropes standard narratives and Hill could not make her story plausible because she didn't fit either into the sexual harassment or rape narrative or the lynching narrative. So now we have a black female protagonist and that also is very unfamiliar for black women were lynched. Black women were lynched. In some cases, you know, pregnant black women had their kids, the infant torn out of their womb. But I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking. Her crime here is not just that she did harm to a child, which yes. at least if we're to believe this, the story of the episode, yes. she actually did no harm to the child. She just witnessed or videoed harm to be, being done to the child. The offense of what she did, yes. I think, to a lot of people, and forgive me, there's no other way to say this, is that she was a bad mammy. She didn't take care wow. of a child. No, of course, you've, re- you've seen this episode much more times than I have. This is my <laughs> excuse, because I saw it originally and then re-watched it for this show. 
But I presume you've watched it over and over again. So that's so interesting. So this bad mammy trope you think is part of the story. Even though it, the mammy is stereotypically the caretaker of the white child, do you think it still works as a bad mammy trope even though the child is black? Yeah, I do. I don't think it's insignificant that the child is named Jemima. Huh. Huh. I mean, I do think that what's offensive, what's most offensive about her is not that she filmed the harm being done to the child, but that she did not step in to take care of a child that was not her own. And that's yes. a mammy. That's a mammy. That's trip. a mammy role for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Were there any of the other names that had that kind of sort of resonance so no no and it's actually hard to impart the significance of the name jemima because of course this series is a part of the uh, this episode is a part of the original two series which were on uk britain based series and so it wasn't until season three that black mirror moved to Netflix and started being really made for American audiences. And I'm not, and I honestly just don't know if Jemima has the same Simply resonance in, in the UK as it does in America. Uh -huh. But, but I know, so I teach at a university, you know, where I have, I would say about 40% of my students are African-American, probably about 30% Hispanic and about 30% white majority non-white students and they always notice that the child's name was they do mind. notice that okay yeah. Yeah. yeah and they all, all also i feel like i should give my students credit for this because i'm sure that at some point in the past i'm borrowing this insight that i'm claiming to be my own yes. for my students which is that i'm sure someone has said before in the i've been teaching this for five or six years every uh -huh. semester so i'm sure someone has said before that the real offense is that she didn't take care of the child when okay. you know, she should have taken care of the child. But I do think that judgment rings in my own head as a kind of mammy stereotype. Yes, yes. There's a general gender thing of you know, women are the caretakers, but in addition, there's a specifically racialized gender role that's going to attach itself to black women. Yeah. yeah. So maybe going back to your question about would it be the same if it was a white woman? I don't think that we have that same expectation of white women. I think that the interpretation of the white woman's role in that same scenario would be, well, that wasn't her child. Yeah. Why didn't she just get away from that guy? Yeah. Like, why didn't yes, she yes, just yes. liberate herself? Yes. I'm thinking, frankly, I need to watch it again now that I've had the benefits <laughs> of you and your class's insight. I need to watch it a third time. Is there stuff that I should have picked up on that I missed? Do you think that the person being punished is the same person as the person who committed the crime in this episode? Okay, you said, which in fact I had not been discerning enough to notice, you say she did not actually take part in the torture and the and the burning? Yeah, but that's not actually the question that I'm asking. So, oh, yes, you're right. Okay. She, like, she didn't actually physically lay her hands on the child yes. and okay. cause the child's death. But I'm asking a question about the memory erasing device. Let me back up just a second and say that I do think that one of the 
sadistically genius elements of this story is that they devised this park to literally be Lex Talionis, to like literally inflict upon her the experience of the child. So she awakes every day. She's confused. She doesn't understand why no one's helping her. She's afraid. And till the moment of the reveal for Victoria, she has the same experience of the child yeah. that she and Ian Frannick abducted and tortured yes, and, and yes, yes. killed. However, the only way that punishment can work is if every day she wakes up and doesn't remember the day before, right? Yes. It's essential to this punishment that she be confused, that she feel helpless and not know what's going on and be afraid. So they have to wipe her memory every evening so that they can repeat the punishment the next day. So my question is really about personal identity. Yes, is the yes, person yes. being punished here the same as the person who committed the crime? Good question, yes. You could say that insofar as there's different criteria. There's a criticism of Locke that memory is not the appropriate criteria because it's basically circular, because you have to decide between your apparent memories and real memories. So you need an independent criterion for that. The fact that she does not remember does not mean that she's not the same person. So there's a sort of spatial temporal continuity and it's the same body. You know, there's a question that could be raised. If a sort of real life scenario of somebody who does terrible things and then has an experience that gives the person amnesia, so does that then mean that we shouldn't punish that person because there is no recollection of the earlier stuff? And I think we'd hesitate to say that. But it is a really interesting question. I think the other question that we could ask is if there is this break in the continuity yes. of memory that you really are dealing with a different person, yeah. then of course the other way to read that is we don't need punishment anymore. We just zap people's memories. Right? Just inject um, them with some yeah, COVID vaccine and there's the, the innocent yeah, right. Oh, that's wonderful. So, I, I mean, I think that that, that would, I think the, the worry with that, of course, is that it's not going to satisfy those among us, and I don't count myself one of these, but those who believe that there are for example, evil people, yes. people who are just rotten to the core. Okay, are you ready for the final questions? I hope I'm ready. All right, Charles. So at the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same three questions. So I'm going to state them all in a row. You can answer them all in a row. The first question is, what do you think the lesson of White Bear is? The second question is what worries or concerns or maybe even scares you the most about the world that's being represented in White Bear? And then the third question is on a scale of one to 10 with zero being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of utopia, where does this world of White Bear fall? Okay, go. Okay, short-term memory not being what, what it was. Maybe I should start at the end. So in terms okay. of numbers, you could make the following point, that a society where terrible things are done to guilty people, and the presumption is only to guilty people, is at least somewhat better than when terrible things are done to innocent people. We can infer this kind of special punishment is reserved for people who have done terrible crimes. And then classic dystopias, of course, you have people who are completely innocent. If you think of 1984, terrible things done to them. What she did was very bad. It doesn't excuse what's done to her. 
But insofar as there's at least some distinction drawn, one presumed between the innocent and the guilty, you could say it's not a zero where, you know, that doesn't matter. So rather than a zero, maybe, I don't know, a two or a three. And then in terms of a takeaway, one possible interesting takeaway is what does this reveal to us about our own society, about our own desire to see people punished, and the extent to which our own emotions can be played upon for tough on crime legislation that ends up being, if not as bad, almost as bad as original crimes in the sense that what does it say in terms of our own desire to see punishment done? Can't you imagine ourselves identifying with the audience saying, yes, it is only appropriate that this woman should have these terrible things done to her? And to what extent can you really draw that distinction between, as you said at the start, old-fashioned eye for an eye, desire as against the more principled, quote-unquote, Kantian kind of position? So does one shade into the other? Is there a sort of bright line demarcation between them? Or is it the case that whenever we demand the sort of seemingly principled respect for personhood, Kantian grounds, what's underlying it, or it's sort of very easy for it to shade into this underlying motive, which is not principled at all, basically just, you know, whatever. It was terrible what you did, so we're going to get off on terrible things being done to you. And is the pleasure we see, the pleasure we experience in these punishments, can that pleasure be made normatively defensible? A satisfaction at seeing justice done is one thing. Pleasure in the pain of the person ongoing punishment Presumably, that's not normatively acceptable, but can you, in fact, draw that demarcation? You think of all the cop shows on television. You could draw an interesting contrast. I, I, I wasn't here then, I, he said quickly. But if you think of, of Westerns in the U.S., so like in the 1950s, American TV, you had like you know, as many, 20 Westerns in at a time. Now, apart from Deadwood, which had its brief four-year run, there's hardly any Westerns at all. So what kind of role does the cop show play now in comparison to the role the Western played then? There's a demonization of the criminal. Not, of course, that many criminals have not done terrible things. And what does that do in terms of a moral economy inducing in the viewer a particular pattern of responses and desire for punishment? And as we discussed earlier, a desire which shades over into something that's far less you know, acceptable from a moral point of view. So that's two out of three. And as I said, I've already forgot the first. So if you just repeat there. So I think that you just answered the first one, which was what is the takeaway? But the second question was what worries you or concerns you the most about this episode? As I say, I think what would concern me is the extent to which this, this is not just distant, nightmarish world, those crazy science fiction writers, what they think of, hey, hold on a second, doesn't this have relevance for our own world? And of course, you could say that the best science fiction is custom designed to do that. Raise question about your own world. So to what extent, and this sort of goes to what I was saying earlier, to what extent can you say that you know, these kinds of things are happening now, not in terms of infinite repetition, but certainly in terms of punishment and the satisfaction of knowing that the bad guys have been locked up, you think of these maximum security prisons where people are, I think, isolated for like in a huge percentage of the time they're there. And like Amnesty and some other human rights groups have weighed in and said that this constitutes cruel and unusual punishment, this sort of isolation. And the fact that it's accepted, we have specific protests centered on Florida last summer 
on racial inequities in the prison system, but couldn't one make more than a general critique and say that independent of racial bias, no one should be subjected to certain kinds of punishments, and why is there no mass uproar over that? And as we know, famous statistic, US has 5%, the world's mm -hmm. population has 25% of the world's prisoners, and that includes many white people as well. And there's a huge class bias. And of course, mm -hmm. the famous thing about the US, which sociologists point out, is that people don't want to talk about class. Because going back to the founding, it's the image of a classless society. So race interferes with that, gender interferes with that, but for white males, it's supposed to be classless. So class is a subject people are sort of uncomfortable with. But it then means that we have to ask, are there all kinds of class biases also in terms of who gets locked up, in terms of who can afford a good lawyer, in terms of who can afford a lawyer at all? So it's a public defender who gives your case 15 minutes and tells you, you know, to plead guilty because otherwise you'll go to prison for twice the amount of time. So I think it also raises those kinds of questions. We need to ask ourselves, are there punishments in our own society that are basically such that they violate these sort of norms of personhood and basic rights on which the society is supposed to be founded? And shouldn't we be protesting them also? Yeah, one of my good friends who works for the Abolish Prisons movement said, I can count on zero fingers how many millionaires are in maximum security prisons as well. Yes. Charles Mills, I want you to bottle up however it is that you are so interesting and sell me a bottle, will you? I'm saving it for my retirement. <laughs> I'm hoping to get a steady income stream from it then. You just sit in your bedroom and be interesting. Yes. No, this has been such a great conversation. I really do genuinely appreciate you and really appreciate you coming on to this podcast. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Lee. Take care of yourself. Be safe. Thank you. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. 